There we go. All right, so uh, we are continuing our new series, and it's called Life Stories. And so today I get to share at least like part of my life story with you guys. I'm excited about that. Now, listen, I love stories. Uh, One of the most fun things for me is whenever I meet a new leader on our team or even a student, I love hearing their, their stories of like how they came to faith because every person's story is so different. And what's awesome is you'll hear people, you, you kind of think in your mind, like, I know what that person's about. I know what they're like. And then you hear their story and you go, what? Like that was, that was in your background. That was your story. And yet you have no idea. And so I love hearing stories. So you're going to hear these stories weekly where a leader's up here sharing their story of how they came to faith. And what I've asked each leader to do is to really encapsulate their story in three words or three concepts. So you'll see that play out today. So I've got some, uh, do you guys want to see some photos? All right, here we go. All right, this is hard for me. It's embarrassing. But there it is. Look at those fat legs, man. Future soccer legs, what that was. Um, I will say, don't judge me. I had no authority in how I dressed back then. Um, but that's a little puppy, I think, on the, on the shirt there, yeah. I had a big mouth back then as well, yes. Um, and then here's a few other pics or a family. Which one am I? You don't know. Which one am I? Someone said the middle. Red, you say red. How many say red? Uh, how many say middle? You know I'm not the one on the other end, right? That's the oldest brother. He was a... He was what we call a bully, right? Um, so I was a, the youngest of three, and so I got beat up a lot as a kid. And like Tim was saying in the main service, he was the youngest of four. So listen, you probably feel our pain, all right? It's, when you're the youngest, you've got to be scrappy. You've got to get your punches in and then be fast and run away. And I was really good at that. So um, that's our, 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 our kid picture family. And then, uh, yeah, we had some horses. We lived out in the middle of nowhere in Virginia, and um, my dad had some horses. It was kind of random and and strange, but, yeah, I'm on the left, brother on the right, and, uh, yeah, it was fun growing up out there. And then I think there's another family photo, kind of blurry, but a little more grown up, a little more sophisticated, wearing a tie. Yeah, brother's super serious. He is still super serious. He's very super serious, yes. Um, But, yeah, there we are. And then I think, I think, yeah, someone said it looks like Landon. I think I agree. I tend to agree. Now, I debated this next photo, but here it is. It's embarrassing. Senior photo. Man, look at that. Look at that hair. You could, like, surf that. All right? It's embarrassing, I know. But listen, I will tell you that you guys with your perms and your curly hair today, one day you will look back on your senior photo with embarrassment as well. You will. You totally will. So um, the funny, that wasn't even like my hairdo. Like, it was like a weird photo thing. I was like, I guess we'll do this. And then it was, it was forever ingrained in the cosmos, right? So um, yes, that's a... Uh, I want to tell you kind of where I was from, too. This is a really, a really strange little town. So um, this little small town you've never heard of before, and you will never hear about it again, but it is called Catlett, Virginia. That's what the town I was from. A small little weird town. 
Um, like a lot of farming country in that area. There's uh, these people called the Mennonites. They're like Amish people, sort of. But they're like more modernized Amish people. And they were like all over this town. And uh, so that was part of the, I guess, a little bit of the weirdness of the town I grew up in. Lots of farmers, dairy farmers. Um, let me see if I have another photo. This is kind of like what it might look like. It's very beautiful, like horse country. Um, I grew up in the sticks, all right, they might say. And, uh, but what's weird about the town I grew up in is you had like this mix of like farmers and like semi-Amish people. And then we had this like random Buddhist temple that was like built in the middle of a cornfield. And it's so random. You see like Buddhist monks walking in the grocery store next to the Amish people, and it was just very random and strange and weird. So my grandfather had this dairy farm in Virginia, and as tranquil as all of this upbringing was, you were only an hour away from all of this. So it was like this mix of all these different worlds. Like you had the urban not too far away. You had the, you know, the, the, the country. You had like the rural area where I grew up, but also went to school in what's called the suburbs. So I had like all three of those worlds combined. And this was the church that I was, basically grew up my whole life, going to the same church uh, in Manassas, Virginia. And, uh, and listen, I've said this before, this church had a lot of problems, but somehow I met Jesus there. And it was genuine and real. And I'm thankful for that. And then there was, across the street from the church, there was a school that the church had started. It was a Christian school. And so this, these two little buildings, two big buildings, was really like where I kind of grew up, where my faith was formed, where I had friendships. And so six days a week was in this like one location, and it's where I was formed spiritually. And uh, both these places were an utter mess, just a total mess. But somehow, God worked in the middle of all that, and it's where I was taught about Christ and the gospel. And this brings me to my first word, which is the word fear. Now, this theme kind of runs through my life, sometimes even now, even today. Um, as a kid, I was somewhat scared of everything because having two older brothers will do that to you. Trust me. Uh, they, would, they, would, they would taunt me. They would tease me. Um, I had a fear of heights. I had a fear of water, not drinking it, but being thrown in and held under. And, yes, that happened many times with older brothers. And, and so I just had these fears that would, um, that would creep up in my life. And um, I remember when I was a kid, like four or five, I, as they say, prayed the prayer of salvation many times, but it was often because of this fear that I had, this fear of hell or this fear of, you know, not doing the right thing. I was the kid that wanted to please, wanted to be seen as good by other people. Um, I was driven to get good grades, to perform in sports. One of my biggest fears was a fear of failure. I know a lot of the guys in the room can relate to that, and girls as well. But we had this, I had this intense fear of just looking like a fool in front of people. And that would often, like, drive me to excel. Like, I didn't want to just excel. I wanted to be the best. You may have heard Tim's message up there. I can relate to that in some way. It relates to soccer because um, that was a sport of choice for me. And um, it was kind of a big sport in my school. And so I wanted to be the best want to be the fastest player, the most skilled player at my sport. And that drove me, but I, when I look back, I just go, you know, that was, was fear-driven, where I just wanted to be, I, I, I feared failing in front of people. And so even 
like how I played or how hard I played or disciplining myself was often um, fueled by fear. I remember one time, you know those events in your life where they're just formative events, whether it's good or bad? And I remember this one time, I was in eighth grade. My brother had started playing football at the local high school, public school, and he was really good. The team was one of the best teams in the state. And I saw these guys like celebrities, like local celebrities. Brother says, he goes, hey, you want to come to the high school and, you know, work out with the football team? And I said, that sounds like fun. And I was a little skinny eighth grade kid. And so I show up, and he's this big defensive tackle, starting on the almost like an all-state level type player. And I go to this, this like, you know, sort of informal workout with the team, and I go into the high school gymnasium, and all of his friends are there in a big circle, and, and his friends say, yeah, who is this? And he's like, it's my little brother. And they're like, they, they look at me and they go, what happened to him? And they all start laughing. And they're like, look how skinny he is. And I wanted to go crawl into a hole. An eighth grade kid being made fun of by an entire football team. Like, I felt so small. I was small. <laughs> In so many different ways, right? Yet, it was that moment where I was like, no one's ever going to say that to me again. And so, you know, you start, you start lifting weights and working out. And, and listen, I still do that today, hopefully for different reasons. But I value those things. But the motive back then was all fear-driven. And it was about just like, again, not looking like a fool in front of other people. So I began seeing as performance or, or self-improvement as the way to get respect. I'm reminded of Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3 where he says this, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul's looking at his life before Christ, and he was this, he was this legalistic rule follower. Now, I was similar. I was the kid who you know, wanted to obey, wanted to follow the rules. Now, I believe I was truly saved at an early age, but my obedience was often just an effort to earn favor with God, earn standing before God. And I was like a little Pharisee. I think about people in my, in my life at my school that I judged harshly. I spoke harshly about or talked to them harshly to their face about things they were doing or things they were not doing. And I want to go back and apologize and retrace my steps and say, hey, I was, I was wrong. I need to repent. I was wrong and make that right. Because there's so many people that were like that where I just saw them as like, oh, they're, they're living this way. I'm living a good life over here and saw myself as good. I was a little Pharisee. I pointed everyone else's sins. As I entered into junior high, that began to change. Because even though I was outwardly obedient in many people's eyes, I, I was becoming inwardly rebellious in my heart. It's what can happen when you grew up in these, like, hyper-Christian environments, you know, church, a Christian school. It can be a breeding ground for self-righteousness and hypocrisy, keeping up this facade of goodness. And it wasn't just true for me, but it was true for my parents. Even though my parents presented well at church, at home there wasn't really what I would call Stability. Now, both my parents, I think, are believers and are believers today. But growing up, I would say they didn't really have a healthy marriage. 
And that was evident to us as the kids. Now, there was never anything like abuse or never any bad language, never any thrown objects, nothing like that. But I can still recall hearing my mom after a, a discussion or argument kind of just whimpering behind a closed door, crying through a closed door. And I would hear that and wonder, like, are they going to be okay? What's happening with mom and dad? And so I internalized all of that and, led to, and it fed my fears. And again, there was never this, you know, threat of divorce or separation, but things were just not okay. And in my home, I would describe it like this. There was like this uh, silent, silent but quiet tension that we lived in sometimes. And what can happen when home doesn't feel stable is that we turn to something that does. And so for me, it was relationships. And so I got caught up in these, what I would call sinful relationships, even in like eighth grade. And then eventually that ended, and then it was 10th grade. And again, I was this good kid on the outside. Many people saw me that way. But these things began becoming idols to me, and they were idols to me. And I was searching for stability, and I was searching for meaning and something that, that felt stable and secure. And even in these relationships, I would keep score of how good I was. I would say that I was walking down some sinful pathways in those relationships, but I had friends that I knew in my mind were doing worse things than me with their girlfriends, and I would see myself as superior. I would see them and say, well, I'm not, I'm not doing that. And I saw myself as better than them. And I began keeping score even in how I was not sinning in the same way someone else might be sinning. And my sophomore year, it all comes to this crescendo and I realized the depth of my sin, I end that relationship that I'm in, and I began to be convicted about the idols I've created for myself. And it wasn't really until then that I realized my true need for forgiveness, the second word. Now, you might think this is obvious. Of course, you grew up in church, go to a Christian school most of your life. You know you need forgiveness. And I knew that I needed forgiveness as a kid, but I didn't realize how deep my sin was. And God kind of brought me to the end of my rope, so to speak, and, and showed me how deeply rooted my idols were in this part of my life. You know, there's, there's understanding our sin at like a mind intellectual level, but then there's the heart level, and I hadn't really grasped that yet at that point. I hadn't really grasped my sin debt and my true need for forgiveness. It reminds me of Luke 18, where Jesus tells this parable. It says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So I was like this Pharisee that Jesus tells the story about. Jesus tells the story to the Pharisees. And he paints them as the, the negative example in the story, right? And I was this example. This is an example for me. I was like this Pharisee. I knew I needed grace up here, 
but it hadn't really gotten into my heart down here. And, and there were two people that were heavily instrumental in helping me understand what this gospel really meant for my life. And this is uh, my youth pastor and his wife. This is Rob and this is Bonnie. And they came to our church my freshman year, and then they left after I graduated. So I had them all four years of high school. And um, Rob began providing opportunities for us to go and live on mission, whether it's locally, but also on mission trips, international mission trips. And something just happens when you start sharing the gospel. You guys can, ex you've experienced that through impact and other trips you've been on yourself, or even just having friends here locally you're sharing Christ with. But something happens in your own heart when you begin sharing Christ with your friends is it becomes more alive to you as well. It's not just helping them, it's actually helping you grow in your faith as well. And around this time, I also began having jobs where there were lots of unbelievers that I worked with um, at a restaurant, but also at a, at a golf course as well. I began playing on a soccer team outside of my school, and there were, you know, no believers on that team as well. And so I began seeing this real need for mission, to live on mission with my faith. So fast forward, end of high school, my dream is to play soccer somewhere in college. Didn't care where, just wanted to go somewhere and keep playing. But God had other plans. So the schools I tried to get into, I didn't quite have the test scores. Grades were good, but test scores weren't as good. I was not a good time test taker, right? And, and so I was not making it into the schools I wanted to get into to go play soccer eventually. And so the school I really had my sights set on, that school rejected me. And um, so note to seniors, the school you, want, you, you may want to attend might reject you, but it might be the best thing that happens to you. Because I think back now and go, what if I made it into that school? What if, what if I'd gotten my way? Where, where would I be today? What would I be doing? So now I'm kind of in limbo. What's next? What's next for me? So I go on this mission trip to England after my senior year of high school. And on that trip, I meet a guy. This guy's name is Joe. And he's a... Uh, he is a guy from Brooklyn, New York. Like, he is, he's a youth pastor, though, in Arlington, Texas. We connect on this mission trip overseas. And, uh, and I don't know, something in him. We're in Washington, Dulles Airport, and we're about to say goodbye. And he just turns around and says, hey, Dave, why don't you think about coming to Texas and being an intern at our church in Arlington, Texas? And then he walks onto the plane. And I was like, where did that come from? Okay, so I start thinking about it. I call the guy up, and I say, yes, I want to take you up on the offer, and the plan is to go for just one year, and I come down that next summer to start interning with him, and I just saw it as a chance to grow as a man, grow in leadership, and I respected him, and so I just saw it as, I wasn't saying yes to anything beyond just one year, and he said, well, it's really an internship for people that are thinking about, you know, full-time ministry. I said, well, that's not me, too. I'm not doing that. I'll never do that. You can put that in writing, and so I um, began working with him for that year and, and plan to go back home after a year was up. But then that led to year two, then year three. And now I'm in college in Arlington and working with high school students. And I'm loving it, but I'm still telling God, like, God, I'm, I'm not going into full-time ministry. That's never going to happen. And I get all the way through my undergrad, and I'm working with students there, and I love that part of it. And I still don't plan on going into full-time ministry. And I tried getting jobs that were in my degree field in Dallas, somewhere in Dallas, somewhere up in Irving. And and it was just like, closed door, closed door, closed door, closed door. And I had these friends that would say, hey, maybe you should think about going to seminary. I was like, wait, more school? Are you kidding me? I graduated, don't you remember? 
I'm not going to school again. And I kept just saying, no, I'm not doing that. We'll never do that. And, and then finally, um, I just began to realize that the reason why I'm saying no to these things, this idea, is it's all fear-based. Because I didn't want to get into, you know, working at a church, get into church politics, didn't want to get into, uh, I, I was terrified. Guys, you're not going to believe it. I was terrified of public speaking. Never wanted to do it. It is like, yeah, give me a microphone. What? For what? To throw back at you? Like, I'm not doing that. I mean, the idea of sermons was like, that's like, I, I hated term papers in school. I avoided them at all costs. A sermon is like writing a research paper. And then you have to perform it in front of people. So teacher's not giving you a grade, but a bunch of people are giving you a grade. That's the last thing I want to do. And I just realized all my reasons of saying no were just all fear-based. And I began to see that. Now, to the outside observer in my life, my life may have looked like this bold and fearless life. Like I picked up, moved to Texas, age 19, got a job, interned at this church. But inside, I was still very fearful of many things. And so God begins to stir this in my heart, this desire to go back to school for seminary and and one day I'm reading this verse in Matthew 17 where the disciples are trying to heal this demon-possessed boy, and Jesus steps in and he heals him. And the disciples come to Jesus and they say this. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So what is Jesus saying? Well, he's saying, see, in Jewish, in Jewish culture, moving a mountain was this picture, this metaphor for doing what seemed impossible. So they're putting their faith in themselves, not in Jesus. So what matters isn't the size of your faith, but the object of your faith. Even small, tiny faith can bring about some amazing things. Then I noticed something as I was reading this passage in Matthew 17. If you look in your Bibles, you will see in many of your Bibles that there's a skip. The verse goes from 20 to 22. And I was reading it going, wait, where's verse 21? Where did verse 21 go? And I look over in the notes of my Bible and it says this. It says, some manuscripts insert verse 21. But this kind comes, never comes out, meaning the demon, never comes out except by prayer and fasting. Now listen, I don't have time to get into all the textual criticism of like early, late manuscripts and why this is in my Bible. All I know is that I read it and I saw a verse missing and I was like, wait, some manuscripts added later on and so it's just debatable, right? But I saw that little phrase and I was like, you know what? I never really pray and fast. I'm going to pray and fast about going to seminary and going into full-time ministry. So I pick this, I pick a day. I said, I'm going to fast and pray on this one day. And I was getting very specific. I was like, God, I need a job to provide for me to go to seminary. It's going to be on me to pay for it. So I spend the morning at this park uh, reading and praying and just praying about that, that one thing mainly. The afternoon, I go to meet with the guy, that guy Joe that you saw in the picture, and we're just going to talk about some stuff nothing specific. And while talking to him that day, 
This is the day I fasted and prayed. He gets a phone call from a friend of his, and this friend had this pool business. And he hangs up the phone, and he says, hey, you should call that guy for a job. I call that guy, and it turns out that guy, 30 years before, started that business to help seminary guys go pay for their seminary. And he said, hey, come interview. So I go interview with a guy like the next day, and I get the job. And here's what's crazy. I was, a year before that, when I was trying my hand at various jobs in Dallas in my degree field, I got fired from this one job. I made some mistakes and I got fired. And God closed that door. And then the next year, I'm working for this like pool business. I'm working at a church. And when I totaled up my salary working part-time, first year of seminary, it was the exact amount of money that I would have made working full-time at my first job in downtown Dallas. So God provided miraculously. And it was a testimony to God's faithfulness. So this is God's faithfulness, not my faithfulness. So many reminders about how God is sovereign and in control of, over everything. There are a thousand ifs when I think about my story. If I had gotten my way about playing college sports, what would I be doing today? What if I hadn't gone on that one mission trip? Would I be here today on this stage? What if I hadn't been fired from that job? What would I be doing today? And listen, for some of you, when God closes a door for you, you become so dejected and you just want to give up. But just hear these words. When God says no to something, he's saying yes to something else. And now at times, you don't know what he's saying yes to. You can't see it. And I feel hypocritical saying all this because I still struggle with fear even today. And it may not be the same things, but it's just new things. But I want you to understand, even now, there's just new fears that will come into my mind and my heart, right? When I look back on the last several years, I, I, for reasons I can't really even get into, 2018 and 2019 was the most difficult ministry year of my life. And then 2020 happened. Remember 2020? And just fed even more fears. But I'm reminded, I'm encouraged by 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where it says this, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. So the power of Christ may rest upon me. So listen, when we really struggle, it is a chance to lean further into his grace and mercy. This is when you get to experience the power of God in your life. So my encouragement to you is this, do what scares you. Don't let fear dictate what you will and won't do for Jesus. Because when you do things scared, it's a chance for God to show off his faithfulness in your life. And God has made available all that I will ever need, all that you will ever need. And he does the same for each one of you. At times, people that are raised in the faith, people will say things like, I've got a boring testimony. Listen, there's no such thing. If you're a Christ follower, there's no such thing as a boring testimony. Here's how I know that. Ephesians chapter 2 says this. And you and I, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, 
following the course of this world, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. There is nothing boring about a dead person being made alive. And if we think that's boring, then we don't realize how lost we were apart from Jesus. So you guys are going to go to your discussion at this time. Um, if you're new, don't know where to go, here's where we normally go.